Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Victoria Reyes, Assistant Professor of Sociology at University of California at Riverside. And she's going to talk to us about her new book, Global Borderlands, Fantasy, Violence, and Empire in Subic Bay, Philippines, in which she develops this concept of global borderlands as a a new analytic space using the Freeport Zone of Subic Bay, a former military base for the U.S. Navy as her case. So we're going to get to these issues of global borderlands, these unique sites of globalization and international exchange in just a sec. But first, Victoria, welcome to the show. And I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you came to first study sociology. Sure. Well, first, thank you so much uh, for having me on this podcast. It's a delight, and I'm so excited to be a part of this. So I came to sociology actually very oddly. Um, I wasn't a sociology major as an undergrad. Um, What happened was, so I was a first-gen college student at The Ohio State University, and I was in international studies and psychology dual degree with a minor in Asian American studies. And so um, what happened is when I wanted to do a thesis, uh, the faculty member I had taken most classes with and getting along, Judy Wu, who's now at UC Irvine, she was actually on sabbatical that year. Um, A class I took with her about oral history uh, was a chance I got to um, interview my own grandmother, and it really kind of sparked my sociological imagination about Subic Bay. And I'll say that in just one minute, but she was on leave. And so I, I wasn't sure who to ask. I took one sociology class um, taught by Rachel Dwyer. And I asked her, she said yes, that she would agree to supervise my thesis, uh, which was about marriage migrants to the US. And the rest is history. So I really credit kind of my sociological career and where I'm at with Rachel Dwyer, who was a first year assistant professor at the time, who agreed to kind of supervise my thesis despite not being a sociology major, right? And so that's really shaped my approach uh, to mentorship and and students uh, because that's how I am where I am today. So my sociological career began with that, and then I did a Fulbright in the Philippines. Um, My topic, how I came to Subic Bay, it seems very linear. And I often give this story that kind of presents a linear narrative in terms of, I took this oral history class with Judy Wu. Uh, This was a chance for me to actually talk to my grandmother. I knew some of her migration story, but she didn't really want to talk about it a lot. Um, but I said, Hey, this is for a class. Can I please interview you? And she agreed. And when I was talking with her, she would tell me about this nostalgia for the former U.S. Subic Bay Naval Base, right? So my grandmother's migration story is she came to the United States through marriage to a U.S. serviceman. Um, My mother is the daughter of a different U.S. serviceman, and she was uh, left in the Philippines for a few years until my grandmother got 
settled. <clears throat> and how she talked about the space with the nostalgia and, and thinking about this really puzzled me. Um, it puzzled me because I was taking classes about U.S. empire, about military bases, and thinking about the, the sex work and the exploitation. And it just, what it made me question, was my grandmother an anomaly? What was going on? This seems so different than the books that I was reading um, about as an undergrad. And so then I, I applied for a Fulbright, and, and I did my thesis, my Fulbright. But in graduate school, I actually wasn't sure I was going to do Subic Bay. Um, it, it wasn't obvious to me. Um, but I think that what happened as I kind of did my two papers and I was thinking about the dissertation, um, this puzzle just stayed with me a lot. Uh, so then I ended up going to Subic Bay. One of the things that I talk about in the book, especially the methodological appendix and the preface, um, and in a uh, paper, uh, published in ethnography, though, is that while it may seem like a linear story, is in fact, we each have a lot of visible and invisible tools that ethnographers use in the course of their fieldwork, right? And so my story, yes, I'm very inspired by my grandmother, but there are a whole host of things in my family background, as in each of us, that I could have kind of studied, right? It's not obvious. I kind of was fascinated by the story of the military base, but in fact, I could have, you know, studied criminology. I could have studied sexual violence, um, you know. And so often you hear about these informal accusations of, of me search or, um, you know, this discounting of particular types of researchers studying particular types of things. But in fact, you know, we all have a lot of things that we could be influenced on and we could study. And so it's not always obvious. So that is a kind of long answer to your question about how I came to sociology and, and this book in particular. No, it's a, it's a cool story. Thank you for giving us all that detail. I think it'll be, it'll be helpful for all the students out there who are, uh, who are listening, who could uh, mine their own biographies and explore their own histories to uh, come up with a, a wide array of research questions. So, um, so you start the book, in the introduction with a, a scene of protest taking place outside of the, the Subic Bay Freeport zone and people are giving speeches and they're holding signs proclaiming Philippine sovereignty and demanding the removal of the U.S. military from the country. And this location is certainly significant. So to, to start us off about the, the details of the book, tell us just generally, like what are Freeport zones? Sure. So Freeport zones, more generally, also known as special economic zones, uh, they actually, there's no universal name for them. They have different names in different places. These are places where economic laws and tariff barriers are relaxed, right? So inside these places are economic incentives for international businesses to come. So it's meant to attract international businesses as means for development. So the laws inside and outside these zones are different. So that's what a free port zone is. It's really this place where tariff barriers are relaxed to attract international businesses. Okay, and then the, the Subic Bay Freeport Zone is an example of the more general concept of what you call global borderlands as a, you're using it as a, a new unit of globalization. So tell us then about this concept that you've developed. 
Sure, absolutely. So global borderlands are these legally ambiguous, legally plural places of international exchange um, where the laws are different inside and outside. So here I really come from a law and society perspective. And what that is, is that really sees laws as these cultural meaning making systems and laws, not just those on the books but also those in action. And so, you know, sociologists would say uh, norms, law and society scholars would talk about kind of informal laws and laws on the ground. And so there's a wide range of these places, right? So things about overseas military bases, special economic zones, embassies, all-inclusive tourist resorts, um, cruise ships, um, American Indian, Native American Indian uh, reservations, all of these kinds of places, right, have these legal ambiguities and competing jurisdictions. And for me, um, what I was really interested in is that a lot of the scholarship on each type of these places have very similar dynamics. And while there are some scholars who unite them, right, so the most famous is Cynthia Enlow and her book, uh, Bananas, Beaches, and Bases, and that's much more popular in kind of American studies and ethnic studies, not so much in sociology. She kind of unites these overseas military bases and, and free port zones in a similar way. And for me, it was really important to think about these places and their similar dynamics, right, to think about how they are where international tensions can arise. They are places of the political economy, right? So uh, maybe we'll get to it later, but in the, the epilogue, right, or in the conclusion, I talk about how these are the battlegrounds of international politics, right? And so these are places that are different than outside. So when you step, say, if you go abroad and you go someplace because it's different, right, because it reminds you of home, or laws are relaxed. So NYU Abu Dhabi, I've never been, but I've talked to many people and read many things. And for example, um, from what I've heard, um, LGBTQ uh, people often feel much more safe and included inside than outside, right? So it's a space of difference than outside its walls. And for me, this is kind of a first step. So what's really important is Theoretical concepts are scope conditions and thinking about uh, where it's different and similar. I use Subic because of its history as two different types of global borderlands, right? A military base and a free port zone um, to really think theoretically about these places. And I see it as kind of almost an agenda setting book and thinking about the first step to understanding these places is reading them in conversation with one another. And future research can document the contours of this concept, how it may be similar or different in other places like international branch campuses um, and when it's not the U.S., Right? The U.S. is not the only empire, formal or informal, around the world. And how are these dynamics similar or different um, in terms of whether it's a, you know, a Russian base or a joint base in the European Union? Yeah, I think it's going to be a concept that scholars can can apply to a lot of different cases. So I, I think it's going to have a lot of import going forward. Um, so you, you mentioned with um. 
Freeport zones, this idea of them being about, you know, open markets for growth, for development. And, and it's funny how you, you comment early on in the preface, the question that you always get of, uh, you know, whether you think Freeport zones and global borderlands are good things or bad things, right? If they're good for growth and development because of open and free markets, or if they're bad for it because they bring in these floods of harmful forms of globalization. But in the book, you're you're very careful to say that you take a much more even and a much more relational approach, uh, saying that it's basically, it's not helpful to look at them as good or bad, but instead to really look at them relationally to see how things like power and status and meanings and, and imaginaries and, and even national sovereignty itself are contingent and produced and reproduced and contested within them constantly in a variety of different situations. So yeah, tell us about this, this approach that you decided to take and some of these you know, debates that you've uh, encountered and had to uh, grapple with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, so as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, um, you know, I do always get this question. I continue to get this question. Well, so what do we do about them? Or how can we kind of oppose them? And for me, you know, and I think, and, and I do get pushback um, from especially humanities folks, um, is that part of my social scientific training? And I think that's a large part of it. Um, and thinking about myself as a, as a social scientist. And I do think that, you know, I very much do engage in public sociology. I have this commitment um, to disseminating work to a broader audience. Uh, but I find that what happens in these questions that get at, are these spaces good or bad for development? What gets lost is the nuance, right? And contra to Kieran Healy, who, as most of us know, who famously has this paper about fuck nuance, I actually think nuance is really important. And thinking about the contours of um, how people understand spaces and concepts are the keys to understanding social life. So when you talk about good or bad, are you really talking about who, what and under what conditions is it good or bad? I mean, I spoke to, I've spoken to former and current sex workers who also have this nostalgia for the base, right? Um, in terms of just the opportunities it provided. I mean, this base provided hundreds and thousands of Filipinos jobs and money. And, and when I say that, that's not to erase all of the more negative things that are associated with it, the exploitation. But for me to understand what's going on, we have to take seriously um, all of the dynamics, right? So, so if we if we look at these places as negative, we're very susceptible to confirmation bias, right? And, and thinking about, well, we're just going to look at all the negative things. But that doesn't actually explain what's going on. It doesn't explain how it's not just Filipino elites who, for example, imagine this place as a way to reach a cosmopolitan modern identity, right? People can think both things, that it's a way to reach modernity as well as a remnant of colonial of colonialism, right? And, and unequal power. And so for me, it's understanding these dynamics, understanding how these come together in particular situations, right? That's really important. So when people talk about, um, right, so I will work, which I really respect and, and 
draw upon. She talks about these as neoliberalism as exception. And, you know, the standard narrative could be that these are just top down places. But and you may ask this question later, but actually, when you look what happens on the ground or even in documents. Right. So I do both ethnography and historical comparative work. That's not what you see is happening, right? So as a Freeport zone, you actually see these judges call upon this language of sovereignty and say this is a Philippine space to say, for example, that foreign individuals don't get special economic rights. Um, that in fact, it's only corporations. So you see this very specific kind of understanding and regulation about who gets which benefits and under what circumstances. And while some people, for example, um, look at military agreements as just kind of the ends, right? So for in the Philippines, um, kind of thinking about I have this chapter that compares this rape uh, case of a Filipina um, who, who the popular media calls Nicole and the murder of this transgender Filipina, Jennifer Laude. <clears throat> and often if, if these stories are told, well, in the end, Daniel Smith was, you know, his his guilty verdict was overturned, right? Or Pepperton, while he was found guilty, in fact, he's under the special um, care in um, that the U.S. kind of dictates the terms of his attention. But Catherine Lutz's work, right, she's at Brown, talks about empires and the details. And for me, it's a very similar powers in the details. And it's the details that matter. It's not just the ends, but the means that are important. And in fact, when you reveal these means and these seemingly small, minute um, uh, negotiations, that's where I think what's sociologically interesting. So in these military agreements, for for example, people often talk about, well, these were U.S. bases and exertions of power. That's true. And, right, so I see my work as kind of adding the and. Um, in fact, in 1979, under Ferdinand Marcos, uh, the bases actually changed from U.S. military bases to Philippine military bases that were underneath a Philippine base commander. And then the U.S., had uh, control over people and facilities. And the same thing happened even in from the start, the 1947 military bases agreements. In fact, there are two different types of bases. One that represented a continuation of U.S. control, right? So, so U.S. colonialism and had control of this land. Uh, but another set of bases actually were Philippine bases that they leased to the United States. And this may seem minute and not really important, but in fact, it has a lot of implications for who pays what bills, who allows access to which roads and buildings, um, who maintains particular cemeteries or building facilities. And in fact, when I talk about in chapter, this difference between territorial sovereignty and what I call administrative sovereignty, um, it's these differences and these agreements that allow, for example, uh, Filipino officials to exert some kind of power, right? And I, and I don't think that um, we should ignore that, right? We need to read it in context and in the broader political economy, but these are actually spaces where there is Filipino agency. And I think it's really important to understand and take account and really center what's going on from the Philippines um, aspect. Yeah, you're, you're really getting at what I think is a really, really cool contribution of the book addressing this macro level 
even philosophical, uh, you know, legal designation of national sovereignty that I think people tend to think is so legally binding that there isn't much room or flexibility over terms. But you're finding really the opposite, that sovereignty is, in fact, a process that plays out on the ground with very specific uh, actors. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think for, you know, I... Um I've been asked, like, it's really important. I rewrote this book many times. It took a long time to get here. And part of that is because I wanted it to be accessible. On one hand, you know, my first priority is kind of thinking about the theoretical, scholarly, and academic contributions, but also making it accessible to the public. And I think when I get asked, you know, what would, you know, what would you want the public to take away? And you hit the nail exactly on the head. The public, the layperson often thinks about sovereignty as this kind of bucket. You either have have it or you don't. But in fact, you see um, in these spaces, sovereignty is contingent, right? And here I build on a, a long history of scholarship. So in sociology, that's George Steinmetz and um, Julia Adams. And you see this in post-colonial scholarship. You also see this in law and society scholarship. Um, but I think that's really important. And this isn't new, right? These spaces aren't new. Um, I talk about in the book that port cities, right, in the early modern age um, were just like this. Uh, Same things with kind of colonial trading forts. One of my favorite books is Richard White's Middle Ground. Um, And in my author meets critic at SSHA, Nick Wilson, is at Stony Brook, um, brought up a really good point. I mean, here I'm, I'm talking about global borderlands and their role in kind of contemporary so- society or modern society. But in pre-modern era, right, these global borderlands could serve a very different role, right? That prior to state formation, this is where state formation can occur, right? Drawing on um, Richard White's. And so I think that's a really interesting point. I think about future research in terms of how has the uses, the change in the dynamics of these global borderlands changed over time? What, um, what, what do they serve, right? So, so I argue that again that they're the battlegrounds of international politics, and we need to take these places seriously. And and as this new analytic space um, that supplements work on urban sociology and globalization, but that tends to focus on, for example, global cities, right? So, so that's often kind of the most popular way to think about um, globalization as a spatialized unit of analysis as these global cities. But in fact, um, these kind of global dynamics and um, politics occur within the host country all over the place. And for me, it was really important to kind of think about the borderland literature, which really uh, talks about borderlands in the geopolitical sense and bringing that to places within host countries. So you see very similar dynamics, right, in these places of all-inclusive tourist resorts, in embassies, right? So I I wrote a piece for the conversation about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and um, uh, thinking about his murder happened at a consulate. That is not surprising, right? It's not surprising that it happened in one of these places or that a few of his alleged murderers um, had diplomatic passports. And with that becomes very specific rights and, and responsibilities. So I think I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but I, I think that these are really kind of rich places. I mean, I don't mean that kind of flippantly, especially that what's going on in these places are life and death. You see that in the case of uh, Jamal, you see that in the case of the murder of Jennifer, um, but they raise really 
important theoretical and empirical questions about the state of um, social life, about globalization, about international politics. Um, and so the, I argue that these are important units to, to understand. Yeah, no, not a tangent at all. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for taking us in some of those directions. So along with Along with the discussions of sovereignty, I, I think another great contribution of the book is to social imaginaries and uh, imaginations of place. And in what's probably my favorite chapter, chapter three, you examine the you examine intimate relationships and the competing sexual imaginaries that exist in uh, the Subite Freeport zone, specifically ones that provide different understandings of the relationships between the remaining, the U.S. servicemen and uh, Filipinas. Uh, and you call them the, the exploitative sex myth and the heroic love myth. So tell us where these, these are common myths. So tell us where they, they come from and just what sort of the larger importance of them is. Sure, absolutely. And I think I first have to say that when I talk about myth, um, like this is a common question I get. I don't mean myth in the sense of it's not true. I mean, myth in the sense of drawing on kind of cultural sociology to understand cultural schemas and understandings. And so that's the first point. And so what I find is, so in this chapter, I draw on both my own interviews, ethnography, but also the secondary literature, right? So um, a lot of academics and activists, in fact, in the Philippines have a lot of these rich sources of data, these oral histories or surveys of kind of these um, sex workers, former sex workers and mothers of Amerasian children, right? These children of uh, Filipino women and, and U.S. servicemen. And here, you know, as a cultural sociologist, I think it's important to understand how people orient themselves, right? There, so there's this big debate, as you know, um, in sociology. So, um, so Colin Jeromek and Seamus Khan famously had this uh, piece, I think it was in Sociological Research and Methods, where they talk about how talk is cheap, right? And, and thinking about what people say versus what people do and kind of taking on um, the importance of interviews and, and the need to kind of really be there. And on one hand, I absolutely agree. I mean, when I was trained, uh, that's what ethnography was. It was to compare what people said with what people did, right? Um, that's kind of the baseline of how to actually do ethnography. But but many great scholars kind of commented in a um, symposium about that article, about the importance of kind of cultural understandings and how people understand the world. Even uh, Jeff Gouin just had this article come out about ethnographic interviews and the importance of culture. Um, you know, Anne Swidler's famous work about thinking about strategies of action. And so here I, I come, um, I agree with them all. And I, with this chapter, I really kind of center around these different cultural understandings of these relationships between U.S. servicemen and Filipino women and and really taking seriously data as a point of even how academics think, think about um, 
these relationships. And so this exploitative sex myth and what I call um, is really thinking about how this understanding of any relationship between Filipino women and U.S. servicemen is grounded in exploitation, is grounded in inequality, and it is something that kind of needs to be addressed, right? And is rooted in kind of empire and its legacies. And, and so that's really the framing of how people understand these relationships, right? Uh, but when you actually talk to many of the women themselves, um, there's this different understanding. Uh, you know, and it, it, what I call the heroic love myth, it's not new in the pers- in the sense that, for example, Denise Brennan's work on Dominican um, sex workers, she talks about this kind of fantasy of escape. Um, Kimberly Huang's work, um, Dealing in Desire, has something similar. My contribution, as I see it, is one is really coming from a cultural sociology perspective and drawing on um, Ann Swidler's talk of love and these love myths and really rooting it in cultural sociology more generally and also combining it in the kind of um, how do I say um, in conversation with this exploitative sex myth right so so when you speak to these women or even when you read their oral histories um, you see these places where these relationships are framed as as a sense of love and being able to kind of romantic and save and leave the Philippines, right? And and so some scholars um, would say, or even in a Marxist fashion, that right that this is just ideology that it kind of um, masks the broader political economy. Um, but I don't take that stance. I take the stance that how people understand the world around them, how they navigate them is really important. And it's precisely this juxtaposition between exploitative sex and heroic love that actually spurs the continued um, relationships between these U.S. servicemen um, and Filipino women. It's precisely how they continue to kind of thrive and how they continue to, they can become high profile, right? So if, again, just like global borderlands more generally, if they were universally unwanted, right, then they wouldn't exist. But in fact, there are these sites of kind of contestation and understanding and those sorts of things. Um, so that's part of what I wanted to do with this chapter is take seriously these relationships and um, and the different ways in which they figure into the lives of different people, right? Yeah, and then going a step further, you then examine the legally ambiguous status of Philippine Amerasian children or children born typically to U.S. servicemen of Filipinas, and often it's out of wedlock. This is obviously a very thorny issue concerning legalities and citizenship and so on. So, so how do the authorities who have to make these sorts of ultimate decisions, uh, the ones, the people who are involved, understand the status of uh, these children? Yeah, sure. So actually, um, before I get that, I, I realized I forgot um, to mention something about the uh, relationships. And I just want to make this point uh, quickly is that these two myths also are more broadly used. So you find the U.S. military, I would argue, also uh, figures into a version of this exploitative sex myth. But in fact, instead of the women being exploited, it's the U.S. servicemen, right? And so you see these laws and regulations about who can marry um, and when and thinking about kind of these women 
as someone who would take advantage of these men. And there are particular kind of regulations in order to get married that you have to um, you have to go through. And on the flip side, you have Filipino mig- uh, marriage migrants in the United States who draw upon this um, heroic love myth, but in a different way, where they see women as not being grateful enough of being kind of saved or brought to the uh, United States. And so it's a way kind of the social, informal social control. And they also draw upon these myths. So I wanted to make that point um, really quickly because I didn't mention it earlier. When we get to the status of Amerasian children, you know, one thing that I think is really important and kind of sparked my sociological imagination is really charting almost their disappearance from U.S. law. And so what you find is that there are U.S. laws about Amerasian children more generally, right? So often this stems from the Korean and Vietnam Wars, and you have particular laws that help facilitate migration, um, of these children, particularly Vietnamese, um, Amerasian children, but also Thai, Laos, um, and and those uh, children from those uh, particular countries. And what you see is that the Philippines, in addition to uh, Japan, for example, uh, was included in these laws in the first draft. But then they disappeared, right? By the time that they were enacted, you didn't see reference right, to the Philippine Amerasian children or to the Japanese, right? And and that, I think, is for a few reasons. One is it's hard to take into account, right, these legacies where the U.S. military has been in the Philippines for many years um, since, say, from the start, 1898. And, and so how do you account for the legacy of these children, but also because of the physical location of being outside the combat zone, right? So even though Subic Bay um, and other military bases in the Philippines were known um, more colloquially as our places of R&R, rest and relaxation, right? Um, they were also major logistic hubs, right? So they were outside um, combat zones. And so I think that played a, a role in thinking about the legal recognition of these children. And you still have, right, even after some of these acts were passed, you still have attempts by U.S. senators or um, Congress uh, persons to include uh, Filipino immigration children in these acts. And I think it's important to think about even in the Philippines and, and centering it in its geopolitical location in Southeast Asia and comparing it um, to other Southeast Asian locations and really thinking about the Philippines as having kind of this illegitimacy written into its laws as well. So there are legally very particular rights that come with legitimate children, those born inside a marriage and those outside of marriage. And often, not always, right, that these fathers often abandon them, uh, these children. When I talk to women, one point of pride and as a way to kind of draw boundaries with those not like them is that the father actually signed the birth certificate, right? So that becomes this point of um, a boundary making that makes their children different from those mothers who have those children whose fathers abandoned them. Um, and these Amerasian children also, I mean, I, I start off that chapter with the story of Apple Day Up. If so, in the Black Eyed Peas, right, um, one of the 
lead figures is actually from Angeles. And so that's kind of the sister city to Subic. Um, that was a former Air Force base. And he has an Amerasian children child. And he migrated to the States through um, the Pearl S. Buck Foundation. So it's a U.S. foundation dedicated to Amerasian children. Um, and they have sponsorships and these kinds of things. And he's kind of the exception that proves the rule in terms of he is this mega superstar. Um, it's interesting if you ever listen to the Black Eyed Peas, right? There's always a Tagalog um, song on there uh, that kind of represents kind of his roots and thinking about that. Um, and he is very, uh, has a lot of charities. He's a philanthropist in the Philippines. Um, but that is not the plight of most children, right? And, and when you see kind of these, um, oral histories or surveys or data collections by social scientists in the Philippines, and you actually read the transcripts, um, you see that these children often face not only this legal ambiguity, but also just having, being half American, right? And, and the problems that pursue. So especially those um, who are born to African-American fathers um, and so are part black and thinking about the discrimination they face, but also um, those who have white fathers and thinking about the ways in which the um, girls in particular, but also um, the boys or the men and the women um, are racialized and sexualized in particular ways. Um, and I think that's probably common about Amerasian children elsewhere, but they they hold this this um, legally ambiguous position. And what's interesting, though, is that it's not just about the U.S., right? So when you think about the Philippine court system, there are these uh, court cases where Philippine judges actually. So you have this case where um, there is a U.S. serviceman who wants to adopt an Amerasian children. It's not done, but it was his wife's um, informer. And the, the Philippine judge says no, in part because of the nationality in the name of protecting the children. Um, and then there was this other case where, you know, the, the man himself did not contest that this was his daughter. But what he was contested was kind of paying back child support. But the Filipino judge and the, and the Philippine court system says, well, this was an illegitimate child. And so, in fact, you don't owe these children or the mother anything, right? And that's who went these different fields. But I think that's really interesting is thinking about kind of um, the Philippine court system and what place these children um, play in it. And it's not just, I mean, I think one of the things I want to do with this book is it's, Yes, the story of the Philippines is a story of the U.S., but it's not only kind of U.S. domination in the Philippines, right? Like, we really want to center the Philippines as a unit of analysis, thinking about the, the multiple and range and varied ways in which um, the Philippine court system, Filipino judges, activists, lawyers, etc., respond, as well as, I mean, in another chapter, I talk about work and thinking about you know, the role of South Korea, the role of, of these different nationalities. Yeah, I think in that chapter, the legal and political tensions that play out within freeport zones and global borderlands really, uh, really comes out and gets humanized quite well. You did, I think, very, very beautifully rendered in that chapter. Um, oh, thank you. So it's, it's pretty rare, I find, that a book engages with both production in the form of labor and work, um, as well as consumption. But you do both by examining 
the work and the labor imaginaries that people construct and follow in Subic Bay and and the consumption side of Subic Bay, particularly the different images and understandings of Subic Bay as a a world-class utopia of elite shopping and how this imaginary, uh, any of these imaginaries do not accurately reflect lived conditions on the ground. So you do this in separate uh, consecutive chapters, but I, I think it would be interesting to hear about them in tandem, how these imaginaries work in terms of how people understand the uh, labor conditions as well as the, the leisure uh, consumption conditions uh, within this uh, global borderland. Yeah, so as an economic sociologist, I mean, I think that they can't be disentangled for me, particularly about this place and this particular place is thinking about um, work and consumption as two sides of the same coin um, and thinking about how they contribute um, to one another. And in fact, if you think about, for example, the Harbor Point Mall, right? On one side, you do have the workers, right? And the flip side is you have the consumers, right? And the customers and, and thinking about the way in which history and nationality comes about. So it's really interesting. I had um, at the Southern Meets Critic at Social Science History Association this, this past week, um, Katrina Katsumbong King um, actually asked this. She, she posed a question that I was a little taken aback by because I didn't think that it was what I was trying to do. But she asked me on one hand, um, right, how history plays a role, right? History plays a role in thinking about shaping these interactions. But on the other hand, she posed the question of whether is my book really trying to advocate a contact hypothesis? And I actually grimaced <laughs> when she said that, um, because that's not what I'm trying to do, right? And, and so for me, it's really thinking about um, on, that you can't disentangle all of these things, right? That that analytically we have to pay attention to the multiplicity and the history of what's going on here. So, so thinking about the U.S. military, for example, you have to think historically to understand what's going on, right? And and thinking about the work conditions of the U.S. military and the base, and thinking about it. Um, the workers trying to, on one hand, get paid very well, especially comparatively. But on the other hand, you have these incidences um, a, that flare up, right? So, so I think in, in the work chapter, I talk about this kind of this search, uh, this search of these. I think it was Filipino women in particular, uh, strip search of them about uh, their work conditions and how that could, was being raised to high stakes. And it was really important. I think a really um, theoretically and empirically interesting source of data I have are these kind of embassy notes and exchanges, right? So it's like the backstage of the U.S. government and the Philippine government. Um, and so you see how, again, my story isn't that, oh, the U.S. base was good or, oh, the U.S. base was bad, but thinking about the conditions in which actual people lived and understood what was going on, how that related to the history of the place with the U.S. military and their lived experiences. And, and the same thing with even other Filipinos. So thinking about the class divisions within the Philippines, you see that in this kind of consumption and work and and. Um, I think you see that with these kind of understanding um, this embodiment of nationality by working for Hajing Shipping, which, um, you know, in the, in the broader political economy and uh, is 
suffers from human rights violations, right? And and this is not just in the Philippines, it's actually globally, and, and linking it to these different protests around the world, um, and, and thinking about these conditions as way in which people understand one another. It's not the case, you know, and I mentioned this in my comments, that I'm trying to say, well, people interact with one another and ergo, they get along. But rather thinking about interactions and thinking about the way in which um, sovereignty can become embodied, right? So that's something Isaac Reed had mentioned in his comments in the author meets critic is, is sovereignty is contested, but it also becomes embodied in a way I think that is not necessarily talked about, right? So in the, the Nicole case, Jennifer Laude case, or even in the work case, uh, cases that I talk about, um, people use this discourse of like, of people embodying a nation. And I, and I think that's really important to think about and thinking about the scope conditions of, of when this is the case, when it's not the case. Right. So I think it's really important for me to think about both the presence and absence of what's going on and thinking about scope conditions. Right. So so in the book, I, I kind of talk about all the mechanisms to understand you have really have to look at kind of law, power, culture and, and, and stakes and really drawing on. Uh, so Matt Norton is at Oregon. He has this great kind of um, uh publication, I'm blanking on where it is, I want to say AJS, but I'm not sure, um, about situations, right? And I think that situationality is so important, particularly in these kinds of spaces where, you know, the political economy gets played out on the ground. So I'm not sure if that quite answers your question. <laughs> I kind of went on a few tangents on there as well. Um, but but I think work and consumption, it, it can't so easily be disentangled that to understand what's going on, often we have to look at both sides. How do they interact with one another, right? Because the one depends on the other, um, right? And so, so thinking about this as a place where the the consumption is so central to understanding how work even makes a difference, right? So, I, so I talk about this visibility aspect, right? And Hanjin shipping can kind of not get away with, but these these factors and and they're invisible, right? Like these are hidden from view. They're kind of um, on a particular side of the Freeport zone, where it's a shopping mall, and you're there and for these customers, these rich Filipino and, and middle class, and and that plays a role. And so I think that understanding the the consumption strategies and the way it's organized um, is necessary to understand and vice versa work and how it's organized in these places. And I think the Freeport Zone and Subic, what makes it a, a Mertonian strategic research site, right, is that this Freeport Zone, often people talk about work as, well, it's it's kind of one type of factory, right, or if it's like a call center or the garment industry, that sort of thing. But here, you know, you see a wide range of different types of economies, right, um, and work and occupations. So you have shipping and manufacturing. You also have an international high school. You actually have some some um, uh, some colleges within the Freeport Zone. You have an upscale mall. You have a tiger zoo. You have a ocean adventure, which is the water park. You know, all kind of in the same zone. So spatially, they're very 
dispersed, right? And and that gets at who gets to go to different places, right? So the zoo, in order to get there, you either have to have your own car or you take a taxi. That's more than a daily uh, wage of an entire family in the Philippines, right? So there are ways in which there's this direct and indirect exclusion of the poor in the pre-court zone. Um, and even to work in the place, right, or, or even to consume, you have these kind of armed guards at this entrance and in, in that is a legacy of the built environment of the U.S. military, right? So it's still the U.S. military gates and structures that you know, Filipino officials have kept into place and have kind of um, uh, taken over. You see the same thing with the government buildings, right? So the Freeport Zone has its own government. And the government buildings um, are these old military buildings. And I think that actually plays a role in a lot of what's going on is this built environment and kind of the, the legacies of the U.S. military um, is very visible and tangible. And of course, the, the military never really left, even though in 1992, when the bases uh, lease were not renewed by the Philippine Senate. So, you know, they got people talk about how they were kicked out of the Philippines. But in fact, the U.S. military had a lot of military agreements and they were just there on a visiting basis, right? So the military never actually left um, the Philippines. And in 2014, you have this um, enhanced defense cooperation agreement where um, the U.S. military now had quasi-permanent locations in the Philippines. And that was very contested and went through the legal system and thinking about the constitutionality of that. But I think even the built environment plays a role, right? And thinking about the consumption imaginaries, um, the labor imaginaries, um, and at play. And so you'd even see these um, these signs, these road signs. It wasn't just in English, right? Um, or Tagalog. Actually, I don't know if there were any Tagalog, but you also had Korean, right? Signs, and I and I think that's important to play out, right? So in in the book, I talk about even in the introduction, right? Actually, the largest number of foreign businesses in the Freeport Zone are Korean. It's not the U.S., right? And so for me, it was really important to kind of address, even though the U.S. military is so central to the book and, and thinking about it. Um, and I think that's important because in some ways, if the only focus is U.S.-Philippines, it's not really centering the Philippines, um, but the U.S. Right. So we have to understand its geopolitical position also within Southeast Asia and its relationship with these other Southeast Asian countries. Right. In which the Philippines is on kind of these councils and, and those sorts of things. OK, thank you so much for revealing those connections that, yes, too often are just analytically detached uh, from one another in, in most projects. Uh, so in the conclusion, then you engage with the question that some readers may have, and that is, I think, with the rise of these ethno-nationalist populist leaders and major global powers, is the global borderland as a model, I guess, the Freeport Zone as a model at risk? And you argue, no, it's not. In fact, it's probably even more important to use to try to understand what some of these international political economic tensions are and how they play out and how they may continue to play out. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and I tackled that question because I think that would be a question, right? So, so if we're 
if we're going into an age where, where there's populism and increasing kind of at least rhetoric of isolationism, um, what does that mean? But in fact, you know, these are the battlegrounds of international politics, U.S.-China trade, right? Like trade is actually um, spatialized, right? It, you know, it's not just these kind of numbers that go in the air, right? You're in urban sociology. Place is important and trade becomes um, important precisely because there are also physical places where this trade takes place. Um, and, and same thing with the embassies and these killings or in, you know, this, the all-inclusive tourist resorts, you see these make headline news when foreigners um, are killed in places that are supposed to be safe, right? Like, so in Acapulco, when, when it was kind of a go-to destination and you see these kind of um, French tourists get killed and, and it becomes headline news because it was supposed to be a space that is supposed to be safe, right? And, and this exceptionalism where people talk about, you know, cartel violence, et cetera. Um, and so I think that, that it only becomes even more important to understand the dynamics because this is what people are arguing about in some respects um, when we're talking about the political economy. And I think that too often, you know, the uh, political economy can become disembodied and, and separate from lived experience on the ground. And, and this is why I think ethnography is so important to really understand uh, what's going on in these places. Um, it's so important. Um, and particularly in places where, you know, that are post-colonial or continue to be colonial, right? So, you know, they, this is more of a next project, but, you know, the U.S. Um, is still an empire, right? It's still a formal empire. Puerto Rico, right? It's not a state and it's not its own sovereign nation state, right? It's a territory. America, Samoa, Guam, right? Um, and I think a play across places um, in Africa, Latin America, um, Asia, et cetera, that are, that are post-colonial, colonial, these spaces become even more heightened uh, because of the stakes involved. Um, and so, so that's what I, I talk about in the conclusion. And I really appreciate, like, I think that Stanford University Press is, is really amazing and really working with my editor, Marcella, and really thinking about what is the conclusion, right? So often, so one thing in kind of journal articles and, and some other books, right, it's kind of this reiteration of um, the argument. But I really love what Marcella did, which was push me to think about taking a step back, right, and thinking about the importance of what's going on and kind of thinking about about what do I have to say about these spaces and, and the roles more generally? Um. All right, thank you. So because I'm, I'm always uh, reflective of my own writing habits and patterns, I'm, I'm curious if you have any writing habits, uh, especially quirky ones. Yeah, so um, I think daily writing. I mean, part of it is, you know, I have two kids. And so I think, so when I, my first tenure track job was at Bryn Mawr College, it's this women's arts college in Philadelphia. And I actually commuted from kind of the Baltimore 
Silver Spring area from Maryland. And I took the train, the Amtrak. A lot of people do, actually, from D.C. to New York. You see the same people. And I really appreciated that, although it was hard and it was long days, is because it taught me this daily writing skill because I was a faculty member, right? So the people listening to this podcast is kind of preaching to the choir, but the lay person, you know, think that faculty members just teach. <laughs> um, but in fact, right, we have research teaching service and, and research is often um, the most important, particularly at research intensive universities. Um, and so for me, you know, I just, my daughter was maybe six or nine months old when I started working at Bryn Mawr. And when you get there at a place like Bryn Mawr in particular, right, um, when you get there, you just have these meetings with students. And, and it's so it's so easy to kind of have the day slip by. And so then I started my daily writing habit on the train and be able to get to write in these 30 minute periods. And I sustained that even after I left Bryn Mawr. And I think now with two kids, um, it's even more important, right? So I, I really appreciate my postdoc time at Michigan, where I went from the tenure track to a postdoc, which is pretty rare, I think. Um, and, you know, having to manage all of these different responsibilities. And now I had so much free time, I really felt responsible that I needed to take advantage of that. And so I'd write. And so one of my writing is I'm writing no matter what. I mean, my time at Michigan was really um, how I started doing public sociology, um, right? So I'm writing these advice columns, particularly aimed at, at graduate students or undergrads thinking about grad school or postdocs. <clears throat> and that's because I was like, okay, maybe I'm tired of writing about this paper or revising it, but I have something to say. And Karen Lacey at Michigan is really wonderful. And she suggested I go to this thing called the Op-Ed Project. It's really about expanding the voices of, of who gets to narrate the world in, in op-eds. And it really changed my thinking and approach to public sociology. And so then I was just writing, or I had the same conversations with graduate students about kind of how to write a paper or navigating grad school. And that led to these pieces because I'm always writing about it. Um, you know, and people, I remember as a graduate student, I was always like, I would look at people's CVs. I was like, how do they have so many papers or projects? And, and you know, um, my, a lot of my work, so my toolkit paper and also pub, that's published in ethnography came about because I was tired of working on my other ethnographic ethnography paper on transparency, but I felt like I needed to write. So it's like, I have this idea, let me start working it out. And so it was kind of like building these papers because sometimes I just needed a break. Um, and so I, I think that having this, this schedule where, you know, you have these competing demands, then having the space where I don't have any, um, and really trying to just make sure I can write. And so I can write in you know, I, I go to coffee shops to write. I I try to just take out my laptop at SSHA, you know, in between, you know, meetings and try to do something, right, that, that is productive, whether that's, you know, grant writing, um, whether that's, you know, writing for a paper or my next projects or, or something. And so um, I often say, you know, the, the musical Hamilton I love and, um, you know, I've had the very privileged in being able to see it twice on stage in Chicago. There's a song called nonstop, right. And it talks about how Hamilton, like, why are you writing? Like you're running out of time. And I think that kind of 
um, I almost take it as my own theme song is that I feel like I constantly need to be writing. Um, and it's, it's not just external. I think it's internal. I think, uh, you know, for me, writing and thinking is my safe space. I, I think it's people kind of laugh or think I'm odd that my work is my safe space. Um, but it's the space to kind of generate ideas, right? And, and think about things. Um, I mean, I, that's how I know I'm, I'm an academic or even how I met, was meant to be an academic. You know, I was in a, this heritage program back in 2006 and I was still an undergrad and I, a heritage program in the Philippines. And what that means is, right, it's these kind of uh, Filipino Americans who would go and they had these language classes as well as cultural classes. And you got to meet people at, uh, you know, as they say, University of Philippines, Diliman. And there was this one experience there that I also was like, that's how I know I'm an academic. So during that time, Gloria Acapulco, um, uh, or Arroyo Macapagal, uh, GMA was, there's this controversy, right, about her cell phone and calling for, um, her ouster and, you know, the, the program manager, right, encouraged these Filipino Americans, right, like, you dressed up as like a Statue of Liberty to go to these protests. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I understand this phone call, um, but I was really asking, I was asking other like students at UB Diliman, like, so, so what exactly was unconstitutional? Can you, can you tell me? I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Um, you know, I talked to the program manager. I was just talking to people, just trying to kind of get my head around what's going on. Right. Um, and, you know, I was like, Oh, cool. Can we get like a panel or, or something? And I just, you know, the program manager just looked at me in this way that, I don't know, it's kind of like, how dare you ask or question, right, that um, what's going on, right? And and to me, that was also a signal is that I'm just really like these puzzles, right? And these, these arguments and understanding what's going on um, just tells me, you know, that, that, I love my work as a, as a researcher in particular. I also love kind of teaching and I'm a weird person who loves service. Um, but, but that's what gets me going. So it's always, you know, I'm always thinking about my work. Uh, this toolkit paper, I was like, I was in the shower and all of a sudden I was like, oh, toolkit, <laughs> right? Like that would be a great way to think about ethnographic toolkit and these invisible and visible tools. And so it's always kind of percolating in my mind. And so I always make this kind of, I write, you know, and some, I have like, a daily to-do list. I have a you know, weekly to-do list, a monthly in terms of a yearly plan. Um, and anytime I have an idea for like a paper or something, um, I write it down. That was some, some great advice I got, I think from Ellen Stroud, who's a historian who's now at Penn State. I worked at Bryn Mawr. Um, and so, and that's what I always, I, I make lists. That's how I can kind of make sure I meet deadlines. That's how I can kind of think about when I'm I'm um, not quite, when I need a break from writing one thing, you know, I can think about well, what are some other ideas that I, I've had or what are some the different things I can work on. So I'm always still working. That's a little bit about my process. <laughs> wow. So you can, you're one of the rare people who can take a break from being productive by being more productive, which is a really cool characteristic to have. Yes, you've chosen the right profession, that's for sure. So you've given us a lot of your time already as a as a way of concluding. I, I typically find this question to be mean, 
for people who just wrote a book to ask them, what is your next book and what is the next project going to be? But given the um, description of your work habits that you just gave and how you are already productive, and you've already, you've already mentioned uh, another project in the works. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what, it, what it is. What is it about? How does it build from what you've done or does it go in a different direction or yeah. Sure. So um, I actually have two main projects that I'm working on. Um, well, the first, the, the main, main one, is I'm on leave on a, um, American Association of University Women and the Postdoc Fellowship uh, to work on this. And in some respects, I'm actually, I think it's a bit risky. I returned to Subic Bay. Um, but this time, you know, I'm, I'm trained train as an economic sociologist, right? And um, Viviana Zelzer um, has been an incredible mentor of mine, in addition to Miguel Centeno, who's my, my main advisor and dissertation chair. And so in economic sociology, there is this great uh, theoretical framework about thinking about how reputation, symbols, and myths of places shape economic activity within them. Right? And so um, really, this was Fred Weary and Nina Bendel have this great edited book that kind of presents this case. And, you know, Fred's first book um, compares uh, Costa Rica and Thailand and thinking about how these narratives of indigeneity uh, shaped and either opened up or constrained pathways to the market for the indigenous population, right? So although Costa Rica is seen as this white country, in fact, they're indigenous people. Um, what I find in a lot of this conversation is an almost implicit assumption is that there's one reputation of place. Um, but in fact, we know from reputation more generally, I'm thinking here of Gary Allen Fine's work, um, that individual, at least, or organizations' reputations are multiple, right? And so with this main project, I'm looking about how um, different, what I'm calling authors and audiences, racialize and gender place. And so I have thousands of documents from different sources um, to get at how where reputation is sticky, right? And gets through made. So everything from TripAdvisor reviews, newspapers, government documents. I mean, and here, you know, I really think of my work kind of the, the next level of my work. It's really about territoriality and how it is um, enacted and practiced, lived experience. And so a question, you know, I unite this cultural wealth stuff with things about um, post-colonialism and empire. And if nation states are sovereign and are supposed to be able to control the territories they live in, does that extend to the myths and reputations about them? Right. And so thinking about you know, the Freeport Zone's attempts to kind of cover stigmas of sex work or, or colonialism, etc. How does that reflect how people are talking about um, the place on the ground? Um, and, and are they able to kind of control this? And what does that mean for kind of this post-colonial state to attempt? So... So that's one. That's kind of my main project. I've worked to date with two grad students and 30 undergrads. Um, I'm working this year with 16 of them who are coding these like TripAdvisor reviews. And we have this methods paper under review um, that really kind of is about transparency in the coding process and how do we come up with definitions of codes and the scope of definitions. Um, and, you know, so it's really thinking about myths and, and post-colonialism and, and that sort of thing. My second project is right now is, is a more of a theoretical paper, and it also draws from and builds upon my, my book. But here I think that, you know, how we use informal empire is way too encompassing, right? For, so right now, informal empire, both sociology, right, because there's this turn towards thinking about empire 
um, in sociology, it ranges from everything from military bases to trade agreements between countries that have no no imperial histories, right? And I, and I don't think that's analytically useful. I think that these are different technologies. As an urban sociologist, I think um, the important place is really important. So here I'm trying to develop that. It's much more of a theoretical piece, right? That's what I kind of present at SSHA and using the U.S. as an example. But of course, it's more broad, um, theoretically useful. Um, but here I talk about how, in fact, I call for a reimagining of informal empire, that it really should be about this kind of territoriality that global borderland sets out and that there are these territorial places within host countries um, that are ruled by foreign countries or the, or the empire, right? So military bases in particular. Um, but that also the territoriality, it's important when the empire leaves, right? When there's not a physical space. In the case of the U.S. and Philippines in 1992, when the U.S. military withdrew. And so here I'm, uh, I have this concept that I'm calling residual empire. And that really talks about how uh, there is a qualitative and analytical distinction between having a physical location within a country and not. And so residual empire. So George Simonson is a ARS um, talks about how informal empire is more coercive than hegemony. Um, and for me, it's thinking about residual empire. There's a few things. One, it shows how it is um, less coercive than informal empire, but more coercive than hegemony. It talks about these lasting um, relationships between countries, right? Often when people talk about kind of empire, it's legacies of empire, which is almost implicitly this passive relationship, but we know that it's active. And so residual empire really gets at and highlights this active way that formal imperial relations continue to shape contemporary um, international politics. But it also recognizes the ways in which um, the former colonial um, colonized can exert power, but it recognizes kind of the, the constraints of that, right? So residual empires win, the empire leaves the ter territory, and then thinking about hegemony or diplomacy as um, what happens when you don't have an imperial past. Right. And, and you don't have that history of empire, which is really important. And it also recognizes, right, that diplomacy, the art of foreign relations and diplomacy is actually trying to influence and control other countries and global laws. And so thinking, you know, I'm playing around with this term called uh, legal policy sovereignty. But what it does is it recognizes that, in fact, every single country tries to influence other countries' laws. Right. Um, and, and that's just what foreign relations is. And so it's really trying to kind of disentangle um, international politics and, and the role of empire. So those are, are the two main projects. Again, one is like a, this book project and I'm in analysis and writing and on fellowship. This other is kind of this theory paper that will be the basis of my book project after that. And I've also, you know, after that, I've always wanted to do an ethnography of an embassy. And so that's on my mind. But I don't have the time right now. But after one of these is done, that's my next project. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank Victoria, thank you so much for sharing all of this about your book, about your work habits, your future endeavors. And hopefully we'll have you on when those uh, books uh, come out. Great. Thank you so thank much. You. Take care. Bye.